The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Rich Young Ruler, I love this passage of Scripture. I love it for what it says. I love it for what it doesn't say. Uh, I love the the follow-up, what happens immediately after the passage that we just read, which we're going to actually get to in this sermon. But this is a passage that is very uh, confrontational. Scripture confronts us here. And so let's get into that. My parents became Christians when, when I was about five years old. Uh, they didn't have a Christian background to speak of. Uh, and when I was young, when I was that age, we, we came into the church. And when we came into the church, we didn't know much. Uh, we, it's not like we'd been culturally followers of Jesus or culturally part of the church for, for our lives. They, they, we, so we were learning. Everything was new. And I remember being in this, in this church, there was a Sunday school class that all, all of the children went to, and I remember being in, in those early years in the Sunday school class where our teacher told our, our class of, of wide-eyed kids, um, well, she gave us something. And what she gave us was she gave us this brown shoestring necklace with a paper um, charm of the Virgin Mary sealing the necklace together. She handed these out to us as children and she said that if we died while we were wearing this necklace, we would be admitted into heaven. I think about that, I mean, that had a big impact on us. I mean, she might as well have been handing us one of the, uh, one of the, you know, one of the stones in, in uh, the Avengers movies, right? I mean, it was like she was, she was giving us kind of the secret to eternal life in, in tangible form. And I think about that, and I feel a couple of conflicting things. One of the things I feel is, is anger. I feel anger because that teaching and that statement is a wicked lie from the pit of hell, right? That, that it undermines the entire point of the coming of Christ, his death and his resurrection, but I also have to confess that there's a part of me that feels maybe a little bit of empathy and in some ways kind of a wish that she was telling us the truth because life would be a lot less complicated if it was just that simple, right? If it was just as simple as here's your shoestring necklace with a charm of the Virgin Mary on it, just put this on and you're good. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that the rich young ruler puts to Jesus. If a necklace made out of a shoestring and a piece of paper could do what my Sunday school teacher told, you would have to pry that thing out of my cold, dead hands, right? And you probably would feel the same if such a thing were available to you. And the reason for that is because this question that we're all asking, it's the question of how we can know that we're secure. How can I know that I'm really secure? Not just in this life, but in whatever it is after this life. 
it's a question of the heart, really, and, and it breaks down into two, two questions that I think drive us all, all the time, and that is, am I valuable and am I lovable? Those two questions. So what I want to look at today in this passage is this. What are you holding on to that not even God himself could ask you to surrender? And what does Jesus say about that? And the answer may surprise you, what Jesus has to say about that. So what we're going to talk about is, is two men, really. I'm going to save the second for a little bit later in the sermon. But two men, who, and they're wondering the same thing. And what they're wondering is this question, am I missing something? Any of you feel that way? Any of you go through life feeling like, am I, am I missing something? Everybody else seems to be keyed in. If you're, if you're an Enneagram person, you're into that. If you're an Enneagram 4 are there any people who know they're an Enneagram 4 in the room right now? Okay, we've got at least one, a couple. Um, Enneagram 4s are known to be people who are kind of wondering if, if they just missed the memo that everybody else seemed to get. Is that, is that fair? It's like everybody else seems to know something, and I, uh, I missed the memo. Well, they're, they're, you, we're wondering, what am I missing? And so this is the story of two men who wonder if they're missing something. We'll deal with the second in a minute. But the first is the rich young ruler. What is Jesus saying in this exchange with this man? Here's what we know about this guy. We know that he is on the surface everything that our culture prizes. It's right there in the description. He's, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Right? He, he's, he has wealth, he has youth, he has power. And those three things are idealized and idolized in our culture and on top of that, it, see, it just gets better because he's not only wealthy and not only youthful and not only powerful, but also what we learn about him is he, he's spiritual. He cares about spiritual things and he's moral. He conducts himself in an upright way. In other words, this guy's pretty buttoned down. He's, he's got it together. Everything is working. His life is full of good things. And they're all things of his, of his making or his control. And so life seems pretty well buttoned up for him. He's a devoted Jew who knows and swears that he upholds God's law. He's what you would call just, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. So he's got that necklace hanging around his neck that he's in good shape. But there's a question that is just gnawing at him and the question is this I've done everything right I've succeeded he's how has he succeeded financially socially morally religiously and so he says to Jesus good teacher I've heard that you're wise I even seek wisdom and I'm wondering, is there something I'm missing? And of course there's something he's missed. He's put his faith and his hope in himself. And whenever we do that, no matter where we are in life, whenever we put our faith and our hope in ourselves, no matter how much we accomplish, no matter how much we can look at and say, okay, there's a measure that I can determine my worth and my lovability by. We always come up empty. And here's the kicker. It's our own hearts that tell us we came up empty. 
We don't need the outside world. to. There's just that thing inside of us that says, yeah, but, but am I, is there more? Andrew Carnegie, when asked the question, how much money is enough, said one more dollar, right? That that's how we're driven, and we, we, we need this. We, we want so much. And so Jesus is getting to this man's identity by talking about his bank, his bank of wealth, his bank of power, his bank of youth, his bank of reserves, his bank of spirituality, of morality, all of these things. And so Jesus gets into this conversation with him to basically unpack his own heart for him. And one of the first things he says is, you know, the rich young man says, why do you, he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, no one but God is good. And what's fascinating here is Jesus is not saying that he's not good. What he's saying to the rich young ruler is, you barely know me. We just met. Why are you walking up to somebody that you don't know and assuming that by their appearance and by their reputation, they're a good person? And then he says to this, okay, you're asking me, what must you do to inherit eternal life? He says, here's what you, let me tell you what you lack. Sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Give it to the poor, trust that your treasure will be in heaven, then come follow me. In other words, what he's saying is take that necklace off. Take it off. Let go of your approach because your approach relies on you. And the young man walks away sad. I love the ambiguity of the ending of this story. He walks away sad. Because Jesus got to the heart of it. Is Jesus just trying to show him up in this encounter? I don't think so. That's not Jesus' way. In fact, what our text tells us is when the young man said that he had kept the law of God from the time he was a boy, Jesus did what? He looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. Why is that detail there? It's to tell us that this exchange is not a hostile one. Jesus is not fighting with this man. He's fighting for this man. And the man is coming to Jesus in a posture of humility. He's on his knees. He's earnest. And Jesus loves him. So what is Jesus after? What's he after with him? Because he tells this man something that we all struggle with. He says the young man puts his faith in his own ability. He trusts in wealth and he trusts in accomplishment. And the proof of this is when he says lay those things down. He's like, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. And Jesus then exposes. He exposes the truth that his efforts to be good have, in fact, alienated him from God by asking him to let go, and Jesus does this, by asking him to let go of something seemingly impossible, by asking him to let go of, his, of life itself. He tells him to do something this man just isn't able to do. He has to let go, not, not of his wealth, but he has to let go of his need for his wealth. And he trusts it so much that he doesn't believe he needs grace, he just needs to achieve. What must I do? We don't do anything to inherit. It's who we are, not what we do, that inheritance are based upon. 
Now, you have to ask the question with a passage like this. Does Jesus oppose wealth? Is this a mandate from scripture that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to live in abject poverty? You need to give everything away and follow him? No, Jesus won't let us be that simplistic about it. Because it's never about money. It's about affection. It's about the affection of the heart. In fact, he never condemns wealth. He never demands that we all live in poverty because money is never the problem. The love of money is the problem. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And the love of money corrupts the have-nots as much as it corrupts the haves, right? If you've ever been in a place where you just were so furious that other people were wealthier than you or well-off, is there not in some way a love of money that's driving that contempt for others? If you're in the top 80% in the country and all you can feel is just how unfair it is that there are 20% that have more than you, is there not a love of money driving that? The love of wealth is not just something that is, a, is an affliction of the wealthy. It's an affliction of anybody who just finds their security in having things and accomplishments. What does it look like to love money? How do you know if you love money? Can you see yourself in that relationship? I learned a little trick from Tim Keller, and that is when you want to say something that stings to your congregation, quote somebody else. Just read a quote. So bringing that full circle, I'm actually just going to quote Tim Keller, and this is going to sting a little bit for you like it did for me probably, but he says this. He says, how do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here are some signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you may have worked harder or might be a better person, and it gets under your skin. When that happens, he says, you have one foot in the trap because... It's no longer just a tool money. It's a scoreboard. It's your essence, your identity. End quote. We've, our scoreboard can be a lot of different things. It can be money. It can be reputation. It can be morality. It can be accomplishment. It can be spirituality. It can be comparison. And so the question is, what... Scoreboard, what are you holding on to that God himself can't ask you to surrender? What's your sacred charm? The necklace that is so trusted and so powerless. This is why Jesus said it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because what he's actually saying is it's impossible what does he mean by that? It's impossible to buy your way in. You need a miracle. If you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need a miracle. A camel can't pass through the eye of a needle without a miracle. And see, that's what Jesus gives us, is the miracle of grace, of salvation. He seeks to shake the necklace-clutching, rich, young, and powerful from this dream that we have, that we can do anything to earn God's unmerited grace. Look at the thing that you clutch. 
personal merit, moral worth. What is it? What is it for you? That brings us to the second man that I wanted to talk about in this passage. I mentioned this was the story of two men who were wondering if they had missed something. Often we see what we fear we're missing by looking at what we draw our confidence from. From the rich young ruler, it was money. But the second is from the following verses that immediately come after this. It's the same moment. And the text says this. In fact, I'll read the last verse that, we just, that Ruth just read for us and then, and then continue on. Um, they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What's happening here? Peter is listening to what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, and as the conversation goes on, Peter is starting to feel like, all right, I did it. Right? Because what is it that he is drawing his confidence from? Well, he's drawing his confidence not from his abundance, but from his sacrifice. What makes me deserve eternal life is how much I've given up, not how much I have. See, the rich young ruler takes confidence in the abundance of his wealth. Peter, conversely, takes courage in the measure of his personal sacrifice. His wealth lies in how much he thinks he has sacrificed for Jesus. And we do this too. We count our sacrifices. And he even says it. He says, look, We did that, what you just said. We left everything and we followed you. And he's proud of it. It's another way we boast in our ability, right? We say, I'm better than that guy. And I've made the sacrifices to prove it. Now, this passage is not where Jesus leans into Peter's swagger. He's got some swagger going on here. But he does in other places. And he does it later in life when Jesus looks at Peter and he says, listen, all these sacrifices that you've made to follow me, they're not going to be enough to keep you devoted to me. You're going to be tested and you're going to deny me. And then you're going to discover that all the strength that you thought you had, strength that will make you swear that you would rather die than disown me. Just, it wasn't as strong as you thought. And then Peter will look at his charm and he will weep. It's coming for him. And it comes for us, doesn't it? It comes for us when we trust in anything other in the unmerited grace of Christ to secure our place with God in all eternity, we reveal a mistaken view. And hear me on this. 
When we trust in anything other than the unmerited grace of Christ to secure our place with God in eternity, we reveal a mistaken view that God can be bought. And he can't. And we need a miracle. And that's what Christ is. And so this passage is a poke in the chest, right? It's a confrontation. What are you looking at? What's the necklace you're wearing? What's the charm that you're counting on to deliver you into eternal life because it's something you've been given, you've achieved, and you've kept, and you've held on to, and you've preserved? What is the Bible doing when it confronts us? It's fighting for us. Right here in this passage, Jesus' words work on these two men in different ways. The rich young man walks away sad. The ambiguity of that ending is wonderful because if you've ever walked away from something sad, you know that that's not the end of it. Now you, you walk away sad because it's, it's upside down for you. And so now you have to think about it and you have to work through it. You have to process. And so we walk away sad. Did he come back? I don't know. Will we see him in glory? I like to think so. I like to think that Jesus did for this man what he does for so many of us and that he gets to the heart through the wound and he reveals the insecurity of this man. What's my confidence in being able to say that? Because I don't know, but here's what I do know. I know that soon enough Peter will deny Jesus just like Jesus said. And if we're asking the question, does the rich young ruler's story end with him walking away sad? If Peter's story is any indication, not necessarily. Because Peter had to suffer the loss of his own security and confidence in what his own personal sacrifices merited for him. He had to mourn the loss of that and lie it in the grave. But it wasn't the end of his story when he failed. Jesus used him to build the church. Peter's continuing ministry is part of why we're here today. When Jesus' words confront us, sometimes we initially just walk away sad because we feel like, well, that's impossible. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story because that sorrow is a gift. Why? It's because it's there to show us you're out of accord. You're out of accord with God's word. And so lean in. Lean into the sorrow, into the frustration, into the incongru incongruity, what a word, of that tension that you feel, right? The impossibility of the call of Scripture. Let it search you so that you might know yourself better and so that you might know Christ better too. Jesus loved the rich young ruler because he understood him. He knew the way of the world is to try to purchase security, and it still is. Right? That's even what a lot of financial things are called, securities. But this is not the way of the gospel. How can we grasp the freedom of the grace of Christ unless Jesus pries out of our hands the necklace charms that we're holding on to instead for dear life? When scripture confronts us for trusting in anything other than the grace of Christ, and that alone to make us right with God. It's just a cheap shoestring and paper sticker of a mediocre drawing. And Jesus is saying, let it go.
But what we can cling to instead is what has happened, and that is a miracle. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the miracle of grace. So you can cling to that and rest in it too. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for the ellipses at the end of it instead of the hard stop period. That there's a, certainly there was a continuation of of this confrontation, of this exchange. And Lord, we don't know the end result of that. But we know that this rich young ruler was talking to the Son of God when he asked his question about what he must must do to inherit eternal life. And we know that you are a God who redeems and restores and heals and pursues. And so, Lord, just as there is hope that this wasn't the end of the conversation. I pray that for any of us that may be feeling like we've already had our confrontation with you and it ended in a final, uh, with a finality that kept us apart from you, may we consider that maybe that's not the end of the story, but maybe you're just trying to pry our grip off of something that we're clinging to that only you can give, and that is the miracle of grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for your love, for your kindness for being our wealth and everything we need. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.